We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. I'm joined in the studio this evening by regular commentators Brian Hugh. Thanks for having me. And Ross Feingold. Good evening. Tonight we'll be discussing President Tsai Ing-wen's inauguration and inaugural address, a minor cabinet reshuffle, the latest coronavirus news and plans to reopen transport and tourism, an apology by embattled Kaohsiung Mayor Hang Guo-yu, and controversy surrounding the use of a large public space in the Taipei main train station. But we'll begin with Wednesday's inauguration of President Tsai Ing-wen for her second term in office, which was a much scaled-down event from previous inauguration ceremonies and held in line with the government's epidemic prevention guidelines. Now, the ceremony began with Tsai and Vice President William Lai being sworn in at the presidential building where newly appointed and former ranking government officials were seated under social distancing guidelines. Now, while leading government officials, including Premier Su Jung Chung, were not wearing masks at that event, all of the presidential office's auxiliary staff and employees overseeing the event were wearing surgical face masks. Now, there was a military gun salute held in the forecourt of the presidential building on Katagawa and Boulevard, but that was void of the large crowds who would normally gather there on Inauguration Day. Now, a compilation of pre-recorded video messages from 65 foreign dignitaries from 41 countries congratulating Tsai on her inauguration was screened at the event, and that included messages from the heads of state of all of Taiwan's diplomatic allies, except for the Vatican. The President then popped across the road to the Taipei Guest House, where she delivered her inaugural address in front of a limited number of guests from the Foreign Diplomatic Corps. Now, seating at that event, was also set out in accordance with social distancing guidelines and Tsai and Lai greeted the diplomats and foreign representatives with salutes instead of handshakes. Now Tsai touched on issues including industrial development, social stability, national security and the strengthening of the island's democratic system in her inaugural address. She began, however, by thanking everyone who waited patiently outside of pharmacies in the early days of the coronavirus outbreak to buy face masks and then she then thanked the public for trusting and having faith in the government's epidemic prevention measures. Tsai then talked about national development, health and social safety, national security, cross-strait relations and government and judicial reform. And she concluded her inaugural address by saying that she'll ask the island's 23 million people to act as her government's guides and partners to make sure that Taiwan is a better place altogether. As in altogether, everybody together. Not altogether, but everybody together can do that. So, where to begin? How about we begin with one thing Tsai talked about that has the KMT and, according to some news outlets, Chinese officials on edge, that, Ross, being a planned constitutional amendment committee. Well, first of all, Gavin, I have to say how shocked I am that you would say that President Tsai touched on some issues since that after your lengthy explanation of the social distancing measures at this event. So to be fair to President Tsai, she did not touch anything, Gavin. She she spoke about many things. Thankfully, the speech was relatively short, uh, which also means she mentioned, she didn't touch, Gavin, she mentioned a lot of things, uh, maybe uh, by way of criticism. I think she talked about a bit too many things. To be fair, that's the style. So whether it's the inaugural address or the double 10 speech that that the president made going back, presidents before presidents, they, they try and cover every single thing. Gavin, since you're from the UK, I'll say this. 
her speech kind of reminded me of the Queen's speech at the opening of Parliament, where the Queen or the King will say, here are all the things my government is going to do. And then, and then uh, the Queen obviously has no role in that because she's only head of state. Uh, so it was very ambitious. And yes, the, the constitutional amendment item might be one of the more ambitious ones simply because it's such a difficult process to change the Constitution, you know, you know, passing the legislature, then putting it out to a public vote. Uh, and you should only do that after a lengthy a uh, period of discussion uh, amongst the public experts. Uh, this is going to be great for the lawyers, Gavin, because you know they'll get lots of lawyers to sit on committees and subcommittees and professors and, and law faculty and, and other departments of universities. Well, they'll all get their share of the, the money that's going to be handed out for attending these meetings. Uh, but it was a bit unclear, and that's why people are talking about this. It was unclear what the, what the format of this was. So if you were going to amend the Constitution, there are committees in the legislative UN that have jurisdiction over certain issues, and, and you would go through uh, the committee process, the regular lawmaking process. So we have to keep in mind here that this is an, I would say, an ad hoc committee. Why it has to be in the legislative UN is also unclear, uh, because if, if we look back at, at, at other significant initiatives undertaken by uh, President Tsai's government in the first term, for example, pension reform, right? a committee was formed to talk to the experts, gather opinions, and write some le proposed legislation. That was done out of the presidential office. In fact, it was led by now former Vice President Chun. So uh, if you're going to let the committees in the legislative end do their thing, then there was no need to say, like, I'm creating a committee. Uh, but if you want to create a committee, that's fine. I, I think she should have been a bit more specific about what exactly it is. And instead, it's just given us fodder to talk about something. And, and frankly, we don't even know what we're talking about because she didn't say what, what, what items she really wants to amend. Hey, the voting law, though, Brian, we do know what we're talking about slightly because, of course, the voting age will be discussed on the agenda of the committee as the first matter of debate. That's right. And so the uh, uh, claim is then that the voting age will be reduced from uh, 20 to 18. And this is uh, Taiwan has one of the oldest uh, voting ages in the world, actually. And so there's been a long-standing demand to allow young people to have more of a voice in politics. Uh, and this will also politically benefit the DPP because of the fact that uh, young people do much more identify with Taiwan than China. And uh, this will benefit the Pan-Green camp. But yeah, exactly. I think the, the constitutional reform uh, aspect is what Tsai closed her speech on, but it's actually it's a little vague as to what this means. And I think this has raised some issues because people are wondering how this will affect her cross-strait policy. For example, does constitutional reform mean writing a new reform for a Republic of Taiwan, which is not the Republic of China? I mean, I actually don't think so. Uh, Tsai, for example, reiterated that uh, she will not actually change cross-strait policy, that she is the president of the ROC Taiwan. Uh, Taiwan came up, as mentioned, as a word much more in the speech than ROC, but but also one notes that the uh, video montage of the, the world leaders and diplomatic representatives uh, congratulating Tsai all actually refer to ROC Taiwan, which is Tsai's preferred nomenclature. And so I think that actually this is, um, I think it's just it's one of those demands that Tsai has had to answer to from a long time, the Pan-Green camp to have some kind of constitutional reform, but it's still kind of very vague as, as to what that means. And I think that that may be what she's banking on. Well, um, maybe they're going to throw the word Taiwan into the constitution. Maybe that's the plan, Brian. Uh, uh, one of the things she mentioned in her address was uh, the ROC Taiwan, uh, 70 years, our 70-year uh, history. Uh, uh, that got people talking. I, I was interviewed about that in some, some media. You know, why, why was there this reference to 70 years since we all know uh, uh, Gavin will test you? What year of the ROC is it? Gavin? <laughs> I believe it's uh, 109, right? So, uh, you know, instead of saying, uh, you know, like, like, for example, my Joe would have obviously said, like, now in the 109th year of the Republic of China, right? So, so President Tsai 
pegged it to to 1950. Uh, Mao. Uh, proclaimed the PRC in, in October 1949. Uh, the remnants of the government kind of made its way here in December of 1949 and then in the early weeks of 1950. Chiang Kai-shek resumed the presidency in, in March of 1950. So there's some logic to, to citing 1950 instead of 1949, even though people often think of 1949. Uh, but uh, you know, maybe they were looking at uh, things like that as well. Uh, again, it's it's unfortunate she 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 wasn't more emphatic. Frankly, she could have junked the rest of the speech and just <laughs> talked about this if it's going to be the most significant item. We're even talking about it right here on ICRT a few days later. She should have just said, "This is what I want to change in the Constitution. I'm the president. I just want an election. I have enormous amount of political capital. I would love to see this done." Instead, she took the meandering route. Uh, yeah, that, that's something that people have, have always criticized her for. Uh, she's not going to change her style, obviously, in her second term. Though. Maybe she was trying to fill up airtime for the television <laughs> channels, Brian. I think, I think actually, yeah, she did actually want to be ambiguous. She didn't want to have any concrete uh, uh, claims that the KMT could then use to attack her. It's like it's this kind of vagueness, you know, touting achievements regarding COVID-19. Uh, there was not actually mention of the 92 consensus, for example, um, which is significant, I think. Uh, right. and, Why and, is she afraid of the KMT attacking her? She just got but also, this enormous also, election just, uh, victory. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But also this was her strategy in the uh, Passive elections, for example, it's easier to bring up, for example, one country, two systems. Uh, point to Hong Kong as an example of a possible fate of close relations with, with China and actually just avoid having to talk about your own concrete policies. I think this is actually just the nature of politics. Sometimes you don't want to be very concrete because that will give your opponents ammo to attack you on. And so right now, I think because of the fact the DPP has been uh, successful fighting off COVID-19, the KMT is really just kind of grabbing uh, at straws, just trying to find something to attack the time decision on. And of course, talking to the KMT, certain rather well-known figures from the KMT, Ross, refused to go to the inauguration, citing a lack of democracy, a backwards-moving judicial system, and general things that I don't see when I walk out of my apartment here. Yeah, President Ma, Chairman, Chairman uh, Jiang, Jiang Qichun, Johnny Jiang, uh, didn't attend. Mayor Han, I guess he was too busy fighting off uh, recall <laughs> <laughs> and and questions from the from city councilors to to be bothered to to make that long trip on the on the high speed rail up up to Taipei. Uh, that that's too bad. I think it would have been better for them to have attended. Uh, they could still make those comments. The way we typically look at such things, and at least from an American perspective, is is to say that it's the institution that's more important than the individual. If uh, Han Goyu had won the election, I think he, he would have uh, been a bit upset, to say the least, if the the counterparts from the DPP hadn't not attended uh, the, the his inauguration. Uh, so that that's a lost opportunity to show the public or the international community that they're part of a, a loyal opposition. But you know what, Gavin, a few months from now or, or the next time there's an election, whether the local election in 2022 or national election in, in 2024, no one's going to care about this. I mean, no, no one's going to say that, oh, Johnny Chang, you're awful because you didn't go to the inauguration. You know, people forget about this. Uh, again, I, I think it's too bad that they weren't there, but uh, they're, they're probably assuming no one will care in the future. But I mean, Brian, they, do you think they should have gone and maybe made comments about the ROC? 
I think so, actually. And probably that would have been a better look. Uh, for example, Taipei Mayor Koenjo, who is positioning himself sort of between the green and blue camps, he actually did go. And then immediately after the inauguration at 12.30 p.m., then he opened a live stream to criticize Tsai. And so that, I think, would have actually even been maybe a better move for the KMT. You know, you go show that you're respecting democracy, and then you immediately after criticize. You grab onto whatever Tsai said in her speech and have some angle of attack. And I think this would have been better than a better look than actually just refusing to attend, period. And of course... We- the foreign media picked up on the China comments in the speech, which were basically, to put it in a word, a rerun, Ross. There wasn't much new here, uh, and that's probably pretty good, right? There, there's this log habit here in Taiwan, uh, again, going back uh, before President Tsai's first term. Now we're in her second term, but President Ma for eight years, President Chen for eight years, or Lee Dong-hoi earlier. What is the president going to say in their inaugural address or their double 10-day address or or, uh, any other major event where they make a speech and and we're kind of uh, conditioned to be waiting for some some big announcement, something bold, some new idea about how to frame uh, relations with China or some other big idea on a significant issue. So, I suppose one could say it's good that she did uh, announce some new plan. And this way, we're not going to be talking about it incessantly for the coming months and years. You know, whether it was the the fifteen no's and the four yeses and the seventeen maybes, or you know how these things get get <laughs> condensed down to something numerical. Remember Chen Shui-bian? We were talking about his uh, his no's and his maybes and his maybe nots, and it was really difficult to translate into English because of the the Mandarin terminology didn't translate perfectly into English. And then Mang Zhou had his three no's about you know I'm not gonna you know woo, woo this boo this you know I'm no 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 violence. No, no attack, no, no declaration. Uh, so in a way, it's good she didn't she didn't do those things. Um, and uh, obviously, she's not going to accept the 1992 consensus. She's not going to say my government will conduct China relations on the basis of the 92 consensus. Obviously, she's not going to accept one country, two systems either. Uh, so nothing new. But on the other hand, we already knew. Now, now I'm saying new as in K-N-E-W. We already knew what her government's cross-strait policy is. And, Brian, there was a minor cabinet reshuffle, of course. Any names there that spring to mind? Of course, the biggest one, of course, was Wellington Gu becoming the Secretary General of the National Security Council and maybe Gong Ming Shin being sworn in ahead of the National Development Council. They're the two that come to mind there and basically stand out. The rest of them... There was no change at the top of the Defence, Foreign, Transport, Interior, Health, Justice, Economic and Finance Ministries. But any Gong Mingxin or Wellington Gu there? Yeah, that's right. And so I think mostly just uh, keeping the cabinet the same uh, mostly represents that Tsai is satisfied with the current slate that she has. And so I think this resuffling just demonstrates that her uh, that she intends to continue the same policies as in her first term. Um, Wellington Koo taking up this post is quite interesting when he was previously at the Financial Supervisory Commission and before that he was working on KMT party assets. And so maybe that signals uh, where, the, where Tsai's, Tsai's uh, efforts will be going next. Uh, for example, moving from uh, party assets, then to financial supervision, and then to national security. Um, maybe indicating that these things are tied together, that uh, KMT party assets, KMT uh, clientless networks in local uh, areas of Taiwan, these are still things that Tsai is trying to work on breaking apart, um, You know, particularly through actions from the executive ran or trying to nationalize irrigation networks and things like that. And so I think this is kind of related, just jumping between these posts. Um, regulates it, it points to that financial matters are maybe a matter of national security for Tsai. And so I think that, that is interesting. But in general, I think that it just demonstrates consistency. I think it also demonstrates uh, that the public 
doesn't really care that much anymore. You know, 20 years ago, 25 years ago, ministers uh, separate from, say, the president or the premier had a fairly high profile, especially uh, on economic issues. And that could be the minister of economic affairs or minister of finance or what's now called the uh, – the National Development Commission it used to be called the Council on Economic Planning and Development. Uh, but you had this troika, uh, the, then the Financial Supervisory Commission was formed, and that was another important post as well. Uh, but, but these people in their own uh, portfolio, in their own right, were, were fairly ho- high profile. Oh, what did the Minister of Economic Affairs say about GDP growth? Uh, as was the, the central bank governor as well, the previous central bank governor who was in the post for nearly 20 years. Uh, Governor Pong. Uh, but nowadays, these people are, they, they don't really have a high profile or a high, high personal public profile. Uh, the decision maker is the premier and the president. Uh, so, again, I don't think the public really cares about this too much. Uh, it does say that the bench is a bit short. And this has been a criticism of the DPP for many years and going back to the Chen presidency. Um, and you see that they constantly recycle a lot of the same people, uh, even if they might change their posts. Uh, but Gu, Gu Lixiong, Wellington Gu, uh, is a good example. You know, he's not he's not from outside. He's, he's been in government uh, almost throughout the, the, the first uh, Thai term. He came in a few months after. He was actually a legislator for a few months. Uh, I think it's uh, unfortunate that you're putting someone without military or national security experience in this position, uh, given the daily threat from China. Uh, so even though he's a lawyer and he was at the supervisory commi- uh, Financial Supervisory Commission for three years, uh, there's still a lot of uh, skills and experience that uh, the National Security Council head would ideally have that he lacks. Frankly, I think one of the reasons he's there is that he could provide significant input on the uh, potential pardon for Chen Shui-bian. And it would be a little odd for him to provide that input if he was still the head of the Financial Supervisory Commission. But now he's sitting over there in the presidential office reporting directly to the president in, in, in this role. Um, and he was a defense lawyer for Chen Shui-bian in some of Chen's uh, corruption cases. And uh, new vice president, uh, William Lai ching has been a vociferous advocate to pardon uh, pre- former President Chen and uh, DPP legislators have been talking about this issue publicly recently as well. So I, I think a significant reason why Gu is there is, is to have some input on, on that issue. Yeah, it's interesting to me, uh, actually, that Chen Shu departed um, from her position as Secretary General of the Presidential Office, because there's a lot of attacks uh, from the KMT in particular that hone in on Chen Shu, claiming that she's manipulating the DPP from behind the scenes, that she's responsible for a lot of factionalism and so forth. Um, but in general, I mean, what I think is significant is particularly Su Chang staying on as premier, um, that has proven to be a winning combination of Su and Tsai, uh, almost complementing each other's strengths in that way. The premier is oftentimes called on to, for example, take blows to the president in terms of credibility. Um, they can be disposed of when, when things go bad in terms of policy. But Sue has managed to uh, maintain a very popular reputation and communicate policies that Tsai previously had difficulty communicating to the public. I think just in terms of her communication style, in terms of the technocratic style of some of the uh, of Sue's predecessor, particularly Ling Chen. Um, and I think um, in that sense, then then um, that's significant. But what also surprised me a little bit is that Vice President Chen Jianren is not taking up another post as in government or staying in government. He's going back to Academia Sinica, particularly because of the COVID-19, uh, the fact that he is an epidemiologist. A lot of actually credited uh, Taiwan 
one successes fighting off COVID-19 to the fact that you have a uh, very talented, a well-respected epidemiologist as vice president. And so it actually bolsters the DPP during the COVID-19 crisis to have him stay on a roll, but he chose it as part, perhaps personal decision or who knows. At the risk of making a forecast, uh, I'll say on Premier Sue, though, Brian, that uh, history shows us that his shelf life, even if he's doing well and he's popular, shelf life might only be a year or two going forward because he's already been Mm -hmm. in the office uh, over a year. Uh, So premieres just don't last uh, Mm -hmm. three, four years typically. Uh, Age might be an issue. Mm -hmm. He's not a young man, even though he's full of vigor. uh, (laughs) And that's one of the things that endears him to to the public. Uh, But as we approach maybe the the next local election, there'll probably be an ideal time Mm -hmm. to switch the the premier. And then the the, the period between the local election, the national election is very short as well. So uh, as uh, the the possibility that he'll last four years is pretty mm-hmm. low. Again, that's just based on past experience. Yeah. Absolutely. And of course, Brian mentioned Chen Zhu stepping down as presidential secretary general. And of course, former legislative speaker Su Jia Chuan got the job. So, well, but that goes exactly to what we were talking about, where, words, where they the, shift the, people the, around, the right? Words, the words putting out to pasture come to mind there, though, Ross. For for Vice President Chen or for, <laughs> for Su Jia Chuan? <laughs> uh, yeah, there, there's this phrase in English, kicking somebody upstairs, uh, that that may or may not apply to Su Jia Chuan. It, it, this is a job whose whose power uh, really uh, depends in part on the individual and, and in part on uh, people holding other important jobs, such as the president and the premier. Uh, so for Su Jia Chuan, you, might, you, you could say he was put out to pasture as well because, uh, and I don't say this to be offensive to him, but again, Premier Su ha- has so much political capital of his own, uh, as does President Tsai, obviously, that the, the secretary general of the presidential office might might function in a more administrative role rather than a policymaking role because there are other people who, who are filling the space for, for coming up with the ideas and executing on the them. Uh, former vice president, yeah, it's great. I mean, he wants to go help on, on, on vaccine research or, or other things in his area of expertise. I don't think anyone's going to criticize him or say that they were trying to get rid of him. Uh, that he could have easily taken up some other role in government had he wanted to, technology minister or, or uh, something in the health space. Uh, you know, being a Catholic, uh, he could have been amb- ambassador to the Vatican as well. <laughs> Um, but uh, I don't think anyone's going to criticize him or the government for, for the decision uh, to go back to to research, especially given the, the virus situation. But I, I would expect Su Jiaquan to, to be administrative and, and not to have a very high-profile role. And we have to take a short break now, but we will return after these rather important commercials. And welcome back to Taiwan This Week. Now, we'll talk about the latest coronavirus news from here in Taiwan as we had a rather heavy first part of the show with the inauguration, etc., etc. Now, the Central Epidemic Command Centre on Thursday of this week reported the island's first new coronavirus case in two weeks after a Taiwanese national who returned from Mexico on Wednesday tested positive for the virus. Now, the latest case brings the total number of coronavirus cases here in Taiwan to have been confirmed to 441 since the outbreak began 
began late last year. However, there have been no locally transmitted cases since April the 12th. Meanwhile, the government this week announced that it had plans to gradually reopen some travel and tourism restrictions that have been in place since the coronavirus outbreak began. Now, the proposed reopening will take place in three phases as it stands now, the first of which will see a loosening of epidemic prevention restrictions on local train travel. Now, that's phase one, and apparently from next Wednesday at the earliest, passengers will be allowed to eat food on trains, just so long as social distancing guidelines is met and passengers wear face masks, of course, before and after eating. Now, phase two will reportedly begin on August the 1st and see subsidies being issued to, for group tours and the possible relaxation of face mask, temperature taking and social distancing regulations. Now, the third and final phase, the government says, could see Taiwan opening up to international tourism from October the 1st, but that depends on the global pandemic situation at the time. So, Brian, the government already talking about international tourism. Uh, that's right, and particularly because the tourist industry is affected, and so attempts to boost domestic tourism will not be enough. I think that that's why the government is looking to, um, you know, uh, gradually op- reopen. And I think there's also just the general effect on, on international commerce, uh, the fact that travel is disrupted, um, in terms of the fact that Taiwan has, has actually uh, been praised as coming out stronger after the COVID-19 epidemic, um, pandemic, uh, that the GDP has actually grown, uh, and so forth. So, I mean, that, but I think that at the same time, uh, much of the science fiction has a lot on the fact that uh, there haven't been COVID-19 cases, that Taiwan has regained all its credibility because of its ability to fight off COVID-19. So I think that actually there will be two priorities here. One is uh, in terms of opening Taiwan back up for the economy, for the sake of the economy, and then also just maintaining the prestige from not having a COVID-19 case there out of control. And I think you know, South Korea shows an example of when um, you can suddenly have a new cluster of cases and this creates a new challenge for the government. Just as the inauguration speech shows, this is something that Tsai administration is really banking its political capital on, that it will keep the, the number of cases low. And so I think it just really depends. I think this is still very, um, you know, up in the air. It depends on what happens next. Well, the international part is interesting because it, it almost sounds more like a, a PR exercise than something that uh, we could ha- say with any confidence in May that will become reality. It might, but I mean, who knows? The airlines right now aren't really flying many flights. So the, the Taiwan based airlines are flying flights because just like the example you cited, Gavin, there, there are Taiwan nationals who need to return to Taiwan. So there's some minimal air traffic. But if other countries are, are still not going to be letting foreigners in, you know, that means that China Airlines or EVA cannot fill up an aircraft with Taiwan nationals to go to those countries. Uh, and then the, the second part of that is they will if they can't fly there because you no know, Taiwan nationals want to go there. The plane would be empty. You wouldn't be able to fly in tourists from those countries. <laughs> so there, there's there's a tremendous amount of variables here that are obviously outside the control of of the Taiwan government. But I suppose it sounds good to say that yes, uh, you know we're going to let in foreigners to, starting from from October. Uh, the other restrictions you cited. Uh, yeah, for those of us who who haven't traveled a lot around Taiwan, this might all be a surprise anyway. Because day to day, if you're in inside a, a city, you're in Taipei, you're going to school, you're going to work, you're coming to ICRT to record a show. There's such minimal measures in place now anyway. But a lot of office buildings might have assigned to wear a mask, but the, very often the security guard doesn't doesn't uh, chase you down to wear a mask. There may or may not be 
temperature taking at the door of, of buildings or schools and the person who's doing it might not really know how to use the thermometer co correctly if they're using a handheld thermometer. So uh, a lot of the restrictions that or, or guidelines that are currently in place are, are fairly innocuous. They're fairly lightly enforced. Uh, so the changes you, you mentioned are, again, Gavin, they sound more cosmetic uh, because things have been going pretty well here anyway. It's, we haven't really been living under strict conditions or lockdowns or anything like that. Whether uh, people are going to travel and, and visit the seaside or, or hike up the hills, go up in the mountains and spend money, uh, who, who knows uh, if they'll do that in great numbers. The, there's been so many iterations of, of coupons and subsidy programs for domestic consumption over the years that it's hard to keep track and, and, and clearly they never have the expected impact because as you said Gavin the industry has always relied um, in large part uh, especially in the in recent 10 years they have relied on, on tourists from China um, or from other places like Korea, Japan, Southeast Asia. Of course, Brian, another thing they came out with this week was new regulations being specifically geared towards business arrivals basically going to say they're mm. going to let, shorten the time of quarantine. Business travellers have to spend in quarantine before they can go out and do their business and leave. Mm, that's right. And that's still very experimental. They're still trying to develop measures in terms of that, um, you know, how much time people actually have to spend in quarantine and from what countries and, and things like that. So, and that's actually one of the challenges, I think, for the side station. If uh, it is as if the coronavirus is as easily spread as in other places, then perhaps one case of, a, of someone businessman that comes into contact with a large number of people could actually cause a great number of issues. And this could lead to more uh, social panic and, and things like that. And so um, it is a question then if actually the side administration will maybe get too overconfident regarding that. Um, but I think it really depends on, on what measures are devised, uh, what uh, countries this is opened up to, and, and that kind of thing. I mean, as Ross mentioned, just the timeline for opening things up really does depend on other countries. And, and although I think this is being touted as a kind of achievement of Taiwan, that it has uh, fought off COVID-19 to the extent where you can allow for business travel and um, this kind of thing, it's, it's still, it's not definite. Let's just hope we don't find out that like somebody came in on a business visa, but they were really here for tourism, <laughs> and they had COVID nineteen, and, and they spread it all over Kudig or some other tourist site. You know, we've had we've had problems in the past in, in Taiwan with with inbound visitors uh, coming in under a, a program or a channel. Um, that they weren't supposed to. It's happened with PRC tourists and mm. there have been some other Absolutely. examples as well. So you, you could probably expect there would be some shenanigans there. <laughs> anyway, moving away from the coronavirus and Gaoshung Mayor Hang Guoyu apologised to city councillors on Tuesday of this week for taking three months off last year in order to campaign for January's presidential election. Now, speaking at the city council meeting, Han said that he's now prioritising and focusing efforts to stop the spread of the coronavirus and, in his words, doing two days' work every day to make up for lost time. Now, of course, that statement comes as Han is seeking to head off his possible recall in the June the 6th ballot and amid concerns among some city councillors that he in fact failed to attend a single city council session until May the 5th for 201 days. Now, Han this week also admitted that his lofty plans for a Disneyland in the city just aren't happening, but he did say he could be popping off to Dongsha Island, which although sitting in the South China Sea, some 400 kilometres away from downtown Gaoshan, city centre is in fact administered by the city's Chijin district. So Ross Han apologises, but his Disneyland place is just not going to happen. Uh, I think we knew that the Disneyland and the uh, car racing, and some of the other campaign promises he made in, in the, those uh, few months preceding the November 2018 local election were aspirational uh, and uh, uh, to be fair to 
Hangul Yu. It's not his fault that that Disneyland or F one don't don't see Taiwan as an attractive location, or don't see Kaohsiung as an attractive location to make that kind of investment. There, there are certainly a number of factors in that decision that far, far transcend what a Kaohsiung mayor can do. But it, it's just part of the these issues you know, that he apologized for the absence, the the time off. Uh, it's just part of the the picture that that uh, has caused the voters of Kaohsiung to sign the petitions and, and probably to, to recall him in, in a few weeks. I mean, it's looking bleak for him. You know, we got we got to tell the truth. Yeah, the the uh, the polls are showing that enough people plan to vote to break through the minimum required. Uh, I think it's 25 percent of the eligible voters need to show up and you just need a simple majority. Uh, so just like in the campaign, now he'll say anything in this campaign to try and convince the voters not not to recall him. Uh, yeah, he's made a lot of bad decisions. He, he had that, that period of popularity that helped him get elected, a brief honeymoon period. And then he made the poor decision to run for president. He won the primary and then his campaign wasn't very good. Uh, then, then he made that decision to take leave uh, instead of running for president while still serving as mayor. Uh, and none of this has worked out for him. You got to wonder who he gets advice from. But Brian, I mean, obviously today, in fact, today as we're recording this show, campaigning actually begins legally for the recall campaign. Basically, people can go out and say stump for this, stump for this. But I mean, recent f- television footage on the news of Han has shown a much more subdued person <laughs> trying to... I mean, he looks a lot different than he did when he was running for presidency, when he first took over the job as Gaoshing mayor, where he was all over the place on the camera. He'd stay, he couldn't talk to someone for more than a minute without moving on. But That's now right, he seems yeah. to have slow down somewhat. And so now he's trying to be very respectable when he previously campaigned on image of being an orthodox political candidate. And that's actually, I think, one of the reasons for his initial popularity, that he was unorthodox. But now he's trying to hammer down on the political orthodoxy, come off as a normal, polite, uh, policy-focused politician. And he's doing this by claiming that he is focused on fighting COVID-19. Um, it's pretty ironic to me, because I think that if not, if actually the COVID-19 epide- pandemic was severe enough, people might not actually be coming out to vote for him. And this is actually one of his issues, that it is under control, and this might actually be a contributing factor to his recall. Um, at the same time, there are the long-standing accusations of him, uh, of his, his administration for trying to interfere in the recall campaign, um, fining the organizers of the recall campaign for their campaign headquarters um, taking down ads that are, are calling for his recall and only allowing for ads that are supportive of him um, and and, and uh, politically harassing groups that are, are gathering to, to just try to advertise for recall under the auspices of measures to fight against COVID-19. Um, and so this, this these accusations will continue to dog him up until the recall vote. Um, but I think it's, it's a little too late, I think, at this point. And just his, his, uh, his failed campaign promise are just, unfortunately, a political joke. And I would have personally liked to see him apologize for not bringing Arnold Schwarzenegger to Gaussian but I don't think that's the one people focus on more, the Disneyland and the Ferris wheel and that kind of thing. Anyway, we'll move away from that issue and move on to another issue, that being a dispute between the Ministry of Transport and the Taiwan Railways Administration over the future use of the Taipei train station's main hall. Well, it made headlines here because the main hall, of course, has been closed since February due to coronavirus pandemic concerns, but it's long been a place where migrant workers have met with friends on their days off simply because it's a pretty spacious public space and has air conditioning. Now, the Railways Administration is seeking to indefinitely continue the ban on people 
gathering in the square or the plaza or the mall area. There's in fact no shops there, it's just an empty space where near the ticketing office in fact. Anyway, the TRA says it hopes that it will continue the ban because apparently it helps maintain order and boosts the station's public image. However, there's been a bit of a backlash over that comment as some have accused the railway's administration of discrimination in the name of the pandemic and of simply trying to move away and move out the migrant workers from the square. Now, Transport Minister Lin Jialong has said that he believes the station's main hall should be opened as soon as possible, while his deputy, Wang Guotsai, this week said that he hopes the hall can reopen by July the 30th, but he also added there will likely be rules in place regarding its use. So, of course, Brian, you have, in fact, the issue here is whether you can gather in the mall area in the train station and sit on the floor so having sat on the floor and being fully <laughs> qualified to talk about this do you think the should be lifted the ban should be lifted ban should continue maybe the ban should be lifted but rules should maintain in place I think it's one of those things that uh, as uh, social distancing measures are lifted, uh, there's concerns that, that actually they will be enforced in a discriminatory way. And I think these concerns are valid because it does seem like a justification uh, by the city government and the Minister of Transportation uh, to target migrant workers, that this that, they was, that uh, migrant workers sitting there on Sundays or days off in the main hall looks bad for the image of Taipei Main Station for tourism or what have you. And so this is one, I think it is actually quite justified to criticize this policy. Um, it's 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 a question then I think just uh, whether what the response from the government will be and and what happens I mean there's plans for a protest tomorrow to take place at noon and Taipei Main Station and it does look like quite a lot of people will actually gather um, so we'll have to see what the response is. Ross, have you sat on the floor in the main station hall? I've spent a lot of time in the main station hall and 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 uh, we have to. You've spent a long time in the main station. I have. How do you <laughs> sit down in your tight, expensive, handmade Italian suits on that dirty floor? Uh, well, you know, I could still stand with style. I don't necessarily have to sit. <laughs> but uh, if we take a step back, the, the Taipei train station, um, it's not just a landmark, but it has a very strong, uh, uh, I say, place in a lot of people's memory in Taiwan, especially uh, people who are a little bit older, uh, back to a time when the, the you have long-distance long buses and there's adjoining bus station you have a long-distance train. Um, this was before there was air travel, uh, or air travel was too expensive for most people. Now it's been replaced by the high-speed rail. But people they still have some, some fond memories of, of the train station, which might include waiting for your train inside a grand hall. And, and a, a big city uh, anywhere in the world with a big train station uh, should have a grand hall. I and mean, it's one of the things that, that, that uh, in New York City – We've been arguing about ever since one of the the two train stations was was destroyed, and you know it was an architectural wonder. This is Penn Station, it had a big hall, and it was replaced with some some awful underground facility that uh, people in New York have been trying to replace with an above ground facility with a proper hall for years. And also, Grand Central Station was renovated about thirty years ago to to uh, bring back to life its grand hall. Uh, so I, I think. Separate from the issue with, with the migrant workers, there's also a, a feeling that you know, a station should have a place where people can congregate. That's kind of just the nature of, of, a, of a big train station. It's befitting of a, a city, a capital, um, and a railway service to have a hall where the, on top of the, the, tr the platforms. And, uh, that, that's an important factor here as well. There's another issue here which is the, the Taiwan Railway Administration and the Ministry of Transportation and Communications – terrible record 
at monetizing their assets. And if you, you've been in Taiwan a long time, you would know that this food court that is on the periphery of the main hall and is on the second floor, along with some other shops that are not 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 uh, offering food, but other types of goods. And it's run by, by a, you know, an outside company. It was put out to tender. They win the tender to operate um, restaurants and other stores in, in the space. That's only a recent innovation. And the, the, the TRA and the MOTC, these are, are very bureaucratic, old-fashioned, conservative uh, government agencies. They're not very good at monetizing the assets that they have. And that's why a lot of the train stations throughout Taiwan – it's like stepping back in time. I mean, there might be a convenience store, but 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 there are not a lot of restaurant choices. And the other facilities at the train stations are just awful. I mean, they're just, they're dirty and they desperately need upgrading. Uh, so, I'm, I'm raising all this because you could solve this problem by saying, "Well, just put a whole bunch more stores in the hall," and then you say it's an upgrade for everyone. The previous experiment has worked well with with uh, restaurants and other stores along the periphery. And we're just going to fill up the, the central space with more stores as well. So you could just, just say it's for the benefit of everyone. It's nothing to do with migrant workers or COVID-19. The time has come to commercialize the rest of the space. So there would be a very good solution. Uh, but instead, we, we've now gone off on this tangent about whether or not it's for dem- uh, migrant workers. Uh, but if, if it really is an issue of giving dem- uh, the migrant workers, the domestics, people who do household chores, uh, a place to go on Sunday, then – Give them another park or, you know, find, find a solution. We really need to be a little more sympathetic to, to the need for uh, these people who do such important work to have a place to hang out on their day off. And that's where we have to leave it here this week on Taiwan This Week. But if there's any migrant workers listening, drop me a line and I'll give you Ross Feingold's address and you can go and hang out there at the weekend. Anyway, I've been joined in the studio today by Brian Hugh. Good night. And Ross Feingold. Have a great weekend. Thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcast on iTunes and Android podcast apps where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 9 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.